Red Cloaks Radio is a production of the Boston Red Cloaks. Hi, this is Jesse with Red Cloaks Radio, here today with co-hosts Karen Rose, Boston Red Cloaks, and Laura Benesi, Boston Red Cloak. We are so happy to speak today with Carol Diano and Pat Yingling, two members of the Bad Old Days Posse, a great name and a great group of women sharing their experiences of abortion before Roe versus Wade, and as well as trying to get access to birth control if you were a single woman also in the bad old days. Right. We first met Carol two years ago in 2020 uh, when we were advocating for the passage of the Massachusetts Roe Act, most of which was passed into law in December 2020. Today, we also welcome Pat, whose recent letter to the editor in the Boston Globe on abortion rights was the catalyst for today's conversation. Pat is currently writing a book about abortion and we'll be talking with her about that. Pat, did you ever think that we would be here again? I did not. Um, okay, I just give you a little piece of my background. I worked at Pregnancy Counseling Service in 1970, 71, and we counseled women initially, unfortunately, to have to go to England. And then when New York opened up, we had that option. And did I ever think we'd be back here? No, I, I thought it, we got what we wanted. And, you know, so many women in those days were out in the streets and um, we were pushing for, you know, safe, legal, and free. Okay. We haven't got to there yet, but, um, in 2019, I read an article in The New Yorker about two women in um, Georgia who uh, run Southeast Arc. It's a fund for abortion. That's Oriaku and Nurichi Joku, okay? And I'm reading the article and as I read it, I realize these women are talking to women from other states. They're getting them places to stay. They're helping them figure out money to pay for this. And uh, at the very end, they were talking to a young woman who was panicked because she, she had lost her job. She had two children. Her husband's also been out of work. They couldn't afford another child. And she only had 200 of the $600 needed. Oriaku said to her, uh, what do you have that you can sell? And she said, well, I'm thinking of selling my wedding ring. And she, she said, Oriaku said to her, don't do that. We'll figure something out. And it brought me right back to 1971, 49 years before, where I was asking the same questions. What do you have that you can sell so you can get yourself to New York for an abortion? Who can drive you? And the clinics were not in the city necessarily. They were outside the city. So you often needed a car to get there. Um, and I thought, how can this be possible? that we're doing the same things. And that's what really started me on the road to working on a book. I first, Carol, I'm trying to remember, but I think it might've been Pam Lowry that recommended you. I'm not sure if it was her or someone else, but I met Carol. She was the first person that I met and interviewed and um, she invited me to join the posse. Did I ever think that it would be this bad now? No, um, I feel like we have an obligation to work on this because in some odd way, we dropped the ball. Carol, you said you did, you said this with a big sigh. You, when I asked you the question, you said, yes, you did fear we'd 
see the, these days again? About three or so years ago when NARAL asked me to be part of a video that they were putting together for their 45th um, anniversary celebration. And one of the questions someone asked me, did I think that Roe would be overturned? And I don't remember at which point, which awful uh, justice had been appointed, but I remember sitting there for what felt to me like a very long time and just feeling this panic in my, in my belly. And I think for the first time I said out loud, yes, I think it will. And um, up to that point, I just didn't see how that was possible. And that was before, you know, things like Texas and, and, all, and Georgia and all these other dreadful things that have been going on. Um, but it just felt like it was totally vulnerable and um, we were going to lose it. And I guess I still feel that way. In, in the outreach that you do for Battle Days, that you are shocked at how many women who have had abortions still feel shame today. That okay. came up in one of our last groups, yes, where um, things were kind of slow. Um, we often have to wait for questions. And especially when you're on Zoom, it's difficult for people. And, and they're taking in a lot of information that sometimes they didn't know. But what we started to see in the chat and then what they started to talk about was how they still feel shame if they're having an abortion. And it's, it shocks me, okay? It really shocks me that young women should feel this embarrassed and upset. It's perfectly legal, it's safe. You have a right to make this choice. And since I've heard a lot of stories from women who had abortions a long time ago um, and their shame is still with them, I'm thinking, how did we hand this down? You know, how did it come to be that even young women now feel in a state where it's open and legal and you can do it, that that they feel this way? Can I jump in? Yes. Do you, do either of you feel that it is the, um, because of the success of the, the lobbying and what Republicans are doing, the conservative legislators are doing to promote shaming on it, it, on this topic? I think they have been using shaming all along. I mean, the protesters at, at the, uh, the clinics and things like that. And I know I keep, keep pushing this book. Uh, Catherine Stewart wrote a book called The Power Worshippers. And one of the things, it's about the coming together of um, evangelical Christians, um, the alt-right and uh, billionaire agribusiness. Um, and she talks about, in the, in the third chapter, the whole chapter is about how these folks 30 some plus years ago came together and tried to decide what was the, the wedge issue that they could really use to push their agenda, which is to establish a Christian theocracy in the United States. And, um, and they decided that it was abortion. So um, it's, not, it's not really about abortion. It's, no. about, it's about power. It's about disenfranchising women. And, um, and they are very good at strategizing about 
using this um, a very normal emotion uh, to to uh, further that goal. I I don't generally go in for um, uh, conspiracy theories, but this one sits really comfortably. <laughs> There's a generational shift for some people, like doing the shout your abortion advocacy, which is very powerful. But it's yes. relatively yes. new. So, you know, if you have, I have a Catholic family. I think some people are pro-choice, um, but some I'm positive are definitely not. So wherever you get it from, if you get it from a relative, you know, just a little hint of a shaming it, or just the taboo that we don't talk about it because we don't want to offend anybody. Those kinds of right. things are so powerful for the individual. And it feels like we're we're in a state of Massachusetts where even talking about sexual health education in a relatively liberal state is not universally supported. So it yeah. brings us back to people we've talked to about the 70s where you couldn't even talk about contraception. You couldn't even talk about having sex. It's not just shame though, okay, because, and I, I mentioned this in the editorial, it's bullying, okay, because um, yeah. uh, there's a doctor that I interviewed who lives in Massachusetts, but goes to Mississippi once a month uh, to do abortions because no Mississippi doctor will do it. Not because they necessarily don't believe in it, but because they're afraid of what would happen to them, to their families, to their practice, to their other jobs, if it was found out. And I just, this has just taken over the South, as we can see. And the only people who are standing up for women, doctors stood up in the early 70s and late 60s for, for legalizing abortion, but they're not doing it anymore. And part of that is fear. And part of that is also um, in my research and talking to uh, doctors who've recently completed um, their training, we don't train doctors to do abortions anymore. Okay? It's very hard to get that training. Before doctors in emergency rooms and OBGYNs would see women coming in in droves um, with, uh, you know, really mutilated by either a self uh, attempt or uh, a botched abortion or with raging infections. And they, they saw it. Now, because it, abortion's been legal, they, the doctors, the medical profession doesn't see it. They exactly. really don't know and um, and so they don't have that kind of impetus of of uh, we have to heal these folks. Um, it's it's oh, the fantasy that somehow they're going to make it this hard, make it this illegal, and it's going to stop is just psychotic. It is it's psychotic. never ever stopped. It's never stopped. No, it never has stopped. It's this bullying that drives me crazy, and they get away with it. You know, in Mississippi, where this woman goes, um, who does the abortions there, the protesters are loud. They they practically attack the women going in. They try to block their cars. I mean, why isn't that illegal? Yeah. I mean, if if a man's going to get a vasectomy, are people going to stand outside and say you shouldn't be doing this because you know that's a potential fetus you're getting rid of? I don't think so. And the sad part is that that the the providers that are seeing. I was just recently talking to a provider that um, sees patients at um, in Jackson, and um, and she said that I've never seen her so exhausted in my life. And she said that 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 they're the providers there are so bullied that they're not they don't want to 
take care of people for follow-up. Yeah. <laughs> Not even the abortions, but the the subsequent uh, infections or, or sepsis or whatever happens to somebody, they, they, they don't want to touch people. And that's so dangerous. It is dangerous. Right. That's happened and, before. And then the way these laws are set up, if you have a miscarriage and not an abortion, you have a miscarriage. You, you have the same medical dangers to your body and then people are not going to treat you. Yes, they're afraid to say the word. I mean, I, I, you may have seen the story about the woman in Texas who was having a miscarriage just, just recently and went into the hospital. And the doctors were so afraid to mm -hmm. say the word abortion that they wrote it on their phones and showed it right. to them. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, what it means then is it's looking like, so you can, you can rape somebody, they can be pregnant, and then yep. you bully them into staying pregnant. Yes. And then what we all know, and we know throughout time is whether it's that victim's sister, brother, friend, mother, father, someone who loves them is going to do what they can to try to save that person from being forced to stay pregnant. So they yeah. will try to induce an abortion. They will, because they don't want their loved person to suffer. Right. Also, when you've got legislation that includes incredible financial damage as well as criminal action, then you can mm -hmm. see why right there, many providers are nervous. You know, mm -hmm. because a lot of these providers are pretty young. When you see the damage that the anti-choice people can create, burning, burning the brand new facility at Tennessee Planned Parenthood, the year before they'd blown off the front door with shotgun, uh, doctors who are harassed, doctors who, who are murdered, then you have to be quite the crusader. And if, and if in those states where the legislatures have not turned against women and people who get pregnant, if, if the doctors, as you say, and this is a really great point, are not witnessing the damage of lack of access to abortion health care, then they're, they're, they're not able to visualize a public health crisis, which is one of the things that I'm sure you'll agree, that's what we're going to be facing. You know, and, and, how, and how much longer before they decide to put the woman in jail? Because there's plenty of places where they're already talking about the pregnant person is going to be criminalized as well. We've recently been interviewing uh, women with their stories, their stories of how they came to make that decision. That's, that's one way of, of claiming your uh, abortion in, in public. And I know that NARAL grew out of that shared history of so many women in the early days of NARAL in Massachusetts. Carol, I think that you were pretty active well, the, more the predecessor organization to okay. NARAL. And then um, NARAL, because it was so national, um, sort of had more um, energy, more power, and sort of took, a, took over. And I, I wasn't even that involved at that point because I was going through fertility issues and found that a little bit difficult to uh, juggle. Finally, we have some access to birth control 
not everything, because of course, we're still fighting for that right on college campuses. We have the uh, ability in some parts of the country to access abortion pills through the mail. And that's been helpful for those women who know about it, have Mm. access to the telehealth connection or the provider as well. But that's going to leave an awful lot of women who are still not going to be able to have access. I think we can't even be sure about that. I mean, what we're hearing is that these same legislators who are legislatures who are passing these very draconian abortion laws are then, okay, we were successful about that. We're going to get now. Next is the IUDs. Next <laughs> is we're going to make it illegal to uh, get through the mail, any of uh, kinds of um, day after medication or abortion medication. They're not done yet. No, they no. aren't. Mm, I agree. And, and, I th- and also just... Uh, trying to eliminate um, provisions of the Affordable Care Act um, where uh, birth control is, um, is covered. Right. Um, so, you know, this isn't just, I just keep coming back. No, it's not. It, it's not. Planned Parenthood is already, or the Guttmacher Institute is already have the statistics on states where they have actually had the ability to stop private insurance companies from providing either abortion care or contraceptive contraceptive care Mm -hmm. I mean this is one of the things that's disturbing to me I mean okay so there's all these organizations there's yours there's ours we're in group uh in touch with a group in upstate New York there's NARAL there's Planned Parenthood there's the ACLU what I don't see is any coordination that would put this an umbrella group that would put it all together so that we could combine our resources really do something to get the word out you know oh yes 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 i think one of the challenges is you have a giant problem like a giant problem and it's frightening and people get upset and they don't know what to do because it's just so big you need another wave of movement level national energy and i think you know, the, the Women's March was a huge wave. And the last four years, the Trump presidency were very exhausting. And now we're looking at a war in Ukraine and things get very overwhelming. But it's tricky because when Texas passed these laws, some people talked about, what about sanctions? What about sanctions for Texas? But you look at Texas and it's like, nothing really happened. Nothing happened. Do you remember, you don't, maybe you don't remember, but I remember when Cesar Chavez was leading um, the farm workers and we were all boycotting grapes. And it was like a huge thing, <laughs> you know? Um, we were all out there, you know, don't buy grapes. My husband at the time, he loved grapes. I was like, you know, you can't have grapes. <laughs> There's no grapes. There's not that kind of energy that way anymore. Do you know what I mean? Or I don't feel it. Maybe I'm right. not running the right group. I think there's an, there's too many people who don't think it's going to happen yet. Where does the next wave come from? Does the next wave, just such as you're both describing, does the next wave come from college age women? 
It never comes from one group alone though. And I think the sort of the age separation that society likes to say, oh, millennials this, oh, that, you know, it's never true. I think all really effective movements are people across generations. I mean, we've learned from a wonderful person in, in Arizona who's providing training specifically um, yeah. that a lot of hospitals are now owned by Catholic church organizations. And so they, they do don't. not allow it. They don't allow it, right? They don't allow it. And so- yeah. The work mm -hmm. you're doing to really tell people what was it like is critical. It is. So critical. Hospitals in DC and um, Chicago had whole wards set aside from women who were suffering from the effects of illegal abortions. Mm. Yeah. And it's just, uh, no one believes you when you say that. Like, yeah, that really happened. You're talking past, that was the, the past, the tense of that statement wasn't clear. So that oh, was in, in the in the 60s, 70s. Yes, it was. Yeah. It was. It was. But, but to be fair, it will be in the future as well because if you yes. it can't be made more that, clear. No, they're just going to let them die because helping them after a botched abortion might be illegal. You know, it's I'm, interesting. I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm so angry. I I just can't even get out the words. It's okay. There You're is in the right place, doctor, right? Doctor, um, I don't know if you ever heard of Mildred Hansen. Um, she was a doctor in, oh God, I'm trying to think, Cleveland or Minnesota. I'm not sure. I'd have to look it up. But anyway, she was a doctor before Roe and after. And even though she wouldn't do illegal abortions before Roe, she would go out of her way to try and see if she could get around laws and get these women a legal, quote, legal abortion. Once Roe was passed, she became an advocate, and one and she actually did abortions until she was in her nineties. Um, but she said, and I always love this quote. She said, "The three life-saving innovations of the twentieth century were vaccines, penicillin, and legal abortion." Mm. And you know. That's that's a physician saying that who's been on both sides, seeing it from both sides. Well, and I think you've both seen it on both sides, and that is that is that perspective is so important. Can you tell us, Pat, more about your book? So the book um, I had organized by decades. Okay, so it was sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, two thousands. All right. Um, so I'm not going all the way back. Okay, but I'm sort of starting out with that then and now thing. So what I'm doing now, I had written a um, an op-ed that was rejected by the New York Times. Anyway, um, and it sort of said to, and the name of it was then and now. So now I, when I take each decade, I say that was then. Look what's happening now, and so. Um, I've reorganized it that way. It actually feels better. It's going better. And I feel like I can actually get it done whenever I recover from this head injury. Um, and it's not meant to be a long book. It's a short book, you know, it's like, it's gotta be punchy and gotta be out there. And for the people, as we're talking about, who don't know what happened before, who aren't even aware. Sometimes when I tell people, like I read my pieces to my writing group and they're, I mean, they're my age, but their mouths are open. They don't know, maybe vaguely they know before, before SB8, now everybody knows, but you know, before that, they didn't know what was going on and now they do. And that's kind of the important thing for me. 
Now, if people wanted to get in touch with you to speak to their groups, how do they do that? I guess the best way would be to, to uh, contact Reproductive Equity Now. Ask for Rory and she can get them in touch with me. You know, we've learned a lot today and it's been very emotional and happy and sad and crazy and mean and everything. You know, our stories are just so rich and so powerful. And as we found, especially recently with the stories of women talking about their abortions, um, you know, we, we, we realize that when we share like that, we're not alone. We realize that we're part of a community of empathetic and sympathetic people. We feel a little less afraid. We, we know we have sisters now we know we have power. And when women tell their stories, then women can change the world. That's what we need. I'm gonna thank you so very much, Carol Dianow, Pat Yingling. I look so forward to seeing you again. Thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. Yes. And, and I love what you do. I, I just get such a glow every time I see you out there in your robes. And I say, <laughs> oh, God bless them. And I've said this before, um, uh, I think the last time is that I told a group of high school students once, I asked them how many had read The Handmaid's Tale, and most of them had, and I said, this should be your Bible, because this is where we're headed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do, I do believe that on, yes. on some horrible <laughs> some horrible level yes yes not prophetic though we're not going to allow that it's not no, prophetic. No. <laughs> just, just a yeah. warning a speed ticket bye for now you've been listening to red cloaks radio a production of the boston red cloaks find us at bostonredcloaks.com 